Yeah, thanks. Good morning. Uh, I don't know about you guys. It's been a, a bit of a long week. I'm a little bit more tired than I should be, have a little bit more work to do than I might like to have. Um, and I have a sense that you may be in that same spot based on a few of you that I've talked to. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, so what a blessing it is that we get to slow down together and come and uh, sit in and be fed by God's Word. Uh, we know that our Lord loves us and that He wants to speak directly to us and that He has good things for us. So let's just take uh, a brief moment and will you just ask Him to just speak exactly what you need to hear right now in this time through His Word. Father, we want to quiet our hearts before you that you might enliven them uh, by your Holy Spirit. Um, will you please help our uh, minds to um, turn away from distraction, our hearts to settle down into a place where they're ready to receive? And will you please, Lord, speak to us because we are your children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at a passage this morning that is, uh, it's a passage that sort of forces us to slow down because not, not a whole lot happens, to be perfectly honest. Um, it's one of the more famous stories in the entire Bible. It's Jesus' first miracle. When you read it, not a whole lot takes place, um, but a whole lot takes place. So John chapter 2, Jesus changes water to wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kinds used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there he stayed for a few days. Now, it's important to set that context up. In John chapter 1, we have Jesus calling the disciples um, and at the very end of chapter 1, he has this, this interaction with Nathaniel. He's called Nathaniel. Nathaniel's blown away that he's seen him under this tree and, and may understand what he was thinking or perhaps what he had been praying. And he tells him, ah, you're going to see great things. You're going to see the heavens open and the angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man. 
And what he's really telling him is not that he's going to watch the angels or the heavens physically open and visibly see it, but he's going to see the kingdom of the heavens brought down to the kingdom of the earth, and the two are going to interact in powerful and beautiful ways through the ministry of Jesus as he reveals the kingdom of the heavens to us. And then this is the very first thing that happens. This is the first taste of the kingdom of the heavens dropping down into uh, our reality. So on the third day, we're told that a wedding takes place. It's Cana of Galilee. Jesus is there with his disciples. They've been invited. His mother is there, and they bump into a minor problem. They run out of wine. And Jesus' mother says to Jesus, they have no more wine. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour's not yet come. And his mother says, do whatever he tells you. And it's easy, I think, if you just read that to think perhaps Jesus was being a little bit harsh with her. What's, what's actually taking place here? And I think we want to pull back a little bit and kind of slow down and remember what the relationship is between Mary and Jesus. What's the context that they're coming into this story with? Mary has lived her whole life with her son knowing that crazy things are going to happen. The angel Gabriel came and spoke to her and told her that she was going to be pregnant with a child of God. There were prophecies. You're going to give birth to a son. He's going to be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God is going to give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. He will have a kingdom that will never end. Scripture tells us that Mary takes these things and she treasures them up in her heart. When Jesus was just a baby and they went to baptize him, more prophecies of what's to come. Simeon and Anna there in the temple, Mary's told that Jesus is going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles, a glory to the people of Israel. And then speaking directly to Mary, Simeon tells her that the child's destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword is going to pierce your own soul too. So she knows that things are coming. So she's lived a life with this little boy who's growing up, right? Growing in stature and wisdom among men. Have to imagine that it was a time of exceptional joy. She was living with and mothering the one who is fully God and fully boy. And she trusts him enough to come to him with a simple need like this. They're at a wedding, they've run out of wine, and she says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And his response is kind of interesting. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And you have to think that Mary is waiting. At some point, something is going to happen. A change is going to take place after his baptism, after the temptation. Now, they're at this wedding, and he tells her, woman, No longer, mother, my hour has not yet come. And when Jesus talks about his hour coming, he's talking specifically about his mission and ministry towards the cross and towards pouring out his life for us. He tells her, my hour is not yet here. But what I'd like us to hear in this is a shift that is taking place in the economy of this world. This is the beginning of the reordering of the family of God. Jesus calls her woman. He doesn't call her mother. 
And in John 15, we're going to find out that Jesus' family is taking on a different tack. His family is no longer by blood relation of any kind. His family is going to be made up of brothers, sisters, mothers who believe in him by faith and who follow him. And this is the beginning of that happening. And his mother then says to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. So he tells them to do this. Nearby were six stone water jars, the kinds used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servant, fill the jars with water. They filled them with water. Now draw some and take it out to the master of the banquet. So you have these ceremonial water jars, 20 to 30 gallons. They were used for, for washing and for ceremonial purity, especially before meals. Um, you'd wash your hands uh, when you'd come into a home. You'd wash your feet and cleanse them. This picture of an outward action, an outward cleansing that would purify a person so that they might be able to stand rightly before God. And Jesus says, fill these water jars, and the jars are filled, Scripture says, to the brim. They're filled all the way to the very top. And if you picture it, picture these, these ceremonial water jars here, 25 to 30 gallons, and the water comes up, and you know when you pour like a drink into your glass and it, it just holds over the top, and unless you're like a physics major, you don't quite know how that happens, but it does, it happens. If there's too much water in there, picture that. Because what is happening is Jesus is fulfilling the entire ceremonial and purification law. The covenant that he's bringing with him fulfills the old and is that much better than water to wine and the best wine. So Jesus has come to bring a new covenant, a new way to be connected, a new way to have intimacy with God. But this time it's going to have nothing to do with outward purification. It's not going to have anything to do with cleansing your skin. It's not going to have anything to do with washing the dirt off of your feet. Now the cleansing is going to come by becoming a family member of God, by becoming a child of God, by having faith in the living God. That faith that is going to make mother, brother, sister, Jesus' family is that faith which now Jesus is talking about here. So we're starting, and we have this picture of family kind of starting to, to take on legs in this passage. And then something kind of wonderful happens. This cosmic sort of shift in the ordering of the world is done by a God who sees us really well. He's telling a story in what he's doing here with this miracle. But there's a character that usually kind of gets left out of this story. It's the groom himself. The groom of the wedding stood to be embarrassed and ashamed when the wine ran out. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus not only saves him from his guilt and his shame, he extends a gift that is so great that he's going to be honored because of it. So you have here the first miracle in Jesus' ministry. Scripture says it's the first miracle by which he reveals his glory to us. But he does it in such a way that he sees the people that are around him and the people that he loves. Jesus likes his people. He sees us. He cares for us. And that is how family works. 
What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so what we want to do, um, put like a, just put like a marker there and, and let's talk for one second about miracles in general. Um, C.S. Lewis is, is uh, his work and his writing on miracles I found to be um, not just insightful, but really kind of life-changing in the way that I read scripture and the way that I view the world. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about miracles in this way. He talks about the reality that there's an activity of God that exists and takes place throughout the whole world, but in some ways is too large for us to see and comprehend. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever lived in, uh, in say, Colorado, or if you've lived perhaps in Southern California, um, even here with the view here. The reality of, of being in this world is things of great beauty can oftentimes become normalized for us and we cease to see them, right? I don't know if you guys know what nose blindness is, but at times people, yeah, uh, pe- people who work around, around smells that are particularly strong and beautiful, sometimes they'll get nose blindness where they can no longer smell that beautiful thing. They can still smell everything else. But Lewis says that there is an activity of God displayed throughout all of creation which man simply refuses to recognize. And that the miracles that are done by God incarnate, the miracles done by Jesus living as a man in Palestine, he performed the very same miracles on a smaller scale and at a different speed. He says that the miracles are in fact a a retelling of God's activity in the world in lowercase letters, while what's happening out here is in uppercase letters. So, for instance, with turning the water into wine, you think that's a a crazy thing, right? But if you look at creation, God has been turning water to wine for millennia. The rain falls to the ground, seeps down into the roots of the grapevines, reaches up into the stem of the grapevines and out into the fruits. The fruits are then born and the grapes are on the vine. The grapes fill with juice. The grapes are then picked. They're picked and they're put in a wine press. The the grape juice is pressed out. It's bottled and fermented and eventually you have wine. And what Jesus has done is he's taken that miracle and he's sped it up and he's done it in this very small, specific place at a very particular event. And Lewis says that that the miracles are to help us see that the personal hand of God in Jesus did this miracle, but it's only halfway effective if we say, oh, that makes him God. It takes its full effect when we then, next time we actually drink wine or we see a bottle of wine or we drive by a vineyard, we remember that the same personal hand of God that did that in Cana of Galilee is doing it now on a grander scale, in a much bigger picture, and at a much slower pace. So we have these miracles, and we have this miracle. And the miracles help us to see better what is here, so that perhaps we can see better what is coming. So we look at at Jesus and his mother in this reordering of family. We see Jesus coming and filling the ceremonial law and bringing a new covenant by which we come into the family. And then we have this picture of a wedding. Why was his first miracle 
at a wedding. First miracle is at a wedding because as family members of God, this is our eternal and final destiny. He starts with his miracle at a wedding, and then one day we will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb, where we as the children and the family of God in our glorified bodies in the new heavens and the new earth will actually sit down to feast with Jesus, seeing him as he truly is. And I know, I recognize that that's a concept that is it's almost like mind scrambling, right? We can't quite grasp it. But in the same way that you look to the miracle of Jesus turning water to wine and then you look at the big picture of Jesus doing that miracle on a much bigger scale, much slower pace, you see God's hand active there because you've seen it active here. I think we are supposed to see Jesus' hand active at this wedding. What he brings, he sees his people, he brings joy to the groom. He cares, and we're supposed to then extrapolate out and see, ah, his hand there will be just as beautiful, but more powerful and more mighty. And then Scripture tells us uh, this, this sort of interesting aside at the end, and it usually gets moved into the next passage, but I think it's great to hit it. Scripture says that after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So that we don't get caught in the miracle and our minds sit there, now we look. Jesus is going with his family, with his mother, his brothers, his disciples. They go to Capernaum, and they just hang out for a couple of days. This picture of friends and family. And it goes back, and I want us to go back into John chapter 1. Come, follow me, he says follow me, follow me. It's an invitation into the family that he is creating. It's an invitation into the family of God, making us brothers and sisters. And I was thinking, the, the, conversa- the, the chapel talk with Brad Matthews, where he was talking about friendship, I'm sure you guys have seen this, right? It's one thing to have friends It's one thing to have siblings, but when you see siblings who are best friends, there's something there that I think is hard to replicate in the world because you have this family element and you have the friendship element, and it creates a bond that is almost It tastes of the goodness of God. When we look at what God is creating here in family, right, and we look at what Brad was talking about with friendship, the privilege that we have to share friendship with one another, brothers and sisters, coming as the family of God, as friends, we have a unique gift and a unique opportunity to have friendships that are deep and strong. And here's the end of where this goes. Um, Bible says that this was the first of his miracles that revealed the glory of God. And how beautiful that the glory of God is revealed in the midst of his children, in the midst of this new reordering of family, in the midst of brothers and sisters coming together friends, 
family looking forward to our eternal wedding supper of the Lamb. I just want to invite you, slow down a little bit, let your heart sit, and know that the invitation of God is an invitation not just to be saved from sin so that one day you will go to heaven, but to experience actually being a family member with brothers and sisters of the living God here and now as Jesus reveals his glory in and through us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a loving, caring God. Thank you that you uh, do not leave us to our own devices to figure out what it means to follow you, but that you beckon us and you call us and that you make us your family. May we, Lord, experience um, what it means to be your children, and may we extend uh, that familial love to one another. We pray all these things in the powerful and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.